Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, verse 16. We'll be looking at everyone's favorite topic, spiritual disciplines, fasting this morning. I'm going to begin with a story. When I was a little kid, I'd come home every day from school, and I wanted something sweet to eat. My mom liked to bake, so there was usually some cookies, and I wanted a cookie. Actually, I wanted, I wanted the whole plate of cookies. But, you know, cruel woman that my mother was, she wouldn't give me the whole plate. She, she might give me one cookie, but she wouldn't let me eat all of the cookies because she didn't want me to spoil my appetite for the real meal that was coming in an hour, hour and a half, two hours. She was disciplining me. She was training me to say no to my appetites so that I could get what I actually needed. We live in a culture of uncontrolled appetites. And when we join in with the world, in feasting on what the world loves, we destroy our appetite for God. Now, it's not bad to be hungry. It's not bad to be thirsty. God made the human body so that it needs to eat. It needs to drink. It's not a bad thing to hunger or thirst. But when we lose control of our appetites, whether physical or emotional or mental, it crushes and destroys our appetite for God. Fasting is one of the tools that God has given us so that we can learn to control not only our physical appetites, but also emotional and relational and spiritual appetites as well, so that we can bring all those things in subjection and control of the Spirit of God. Now, uh, I suspect that for many of you, you may have never fasted before a day in your life, or you've very, fasted very infrequently and it's been a horrible experience. And probably for many of you, you say, look, we're living in the church age now. That's, that's, that's Old Covenant. That's Old Testament. That's a practice that really we don't need to do any longer. Fasting is not really a, a popular spiritual discipline, so to speak, particularly among evangelical Christians. So uh, should we do it? Should we not do it? I want to remind you of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Right in the middle of the sermon, he spends an entire section talking about spiritual practices or religious practices. And there are three in particular that he highlights. And he begins like this. He says, when you give to the poor, when you pray, whenever you fast. In other words, Jesus assumes these practices. Ancient practices, people who wanted to pursue God had given to the poor, prayed and fasted as a part of their pursuit of God for generations. And Jesus assumed that this would happen. Uh, He assumed when he was taken away in Matthew chapter 9 that the church would fast. And you look in the book of Acts, the church is fasting. We'll look at that a little later in Acts chapter 13. It was just an assumption. In other words, I think that the reason the epistles don't speak a lot about fasting is that it was just assumed. Because there was great benefit in it and it was a common practice and people had participated in it and knew how to do it appropriately and properly that the epistles didn't spend a lot of time. Peter and Paul and John didn't spend a lot of time talking about fasting because it was assumed. But we don't fast much in the evangelical church today. So I want to begin with a simple definition of fasting. This is from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He defined it like this. He said, Fasting is abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. There are many bodily functions which are right and normal and perfectly legitimate but which for special peculiar reasons in certain circumstances should be controlled. Now, I want you to notice a few words in this definition. The first is legitimate. Uh, Fasting is from a legitimate practice. You don't fast from sin, right? (laughs) Okay. So you don't fast from lying and cheating and stealing. Don't come up to me and say, hey, I decided to take a break from my immoral practices for uh, a a little while just to see how that works. That's called repentance, not fasting, okay? 
So it is from a legitimate thing. It's it's from eating, which your body needs, or drinking something. It's, It's from something that can actually be good, or it's at least morally neutral. Okay, so it's from something legitimate. Second, it's for a spiritual purpose. Fasting is not dieting. You don't fast to lose weight. Those are, I'm not saying you should never diet. I'm just saying those are just two completely different things. And you don't fast just to inflict pain on the body for the sake of pain. That's masochism and we are not Christian masochists. That's not what we're about. It's not just for the sake of pain. That's not why we fast. Third, it can be from anything. It doesn't just have to be from food. It can be from anything. It could be from a particular food. Stepping on my own toes, you could fast from coffee. I've done that a few times. It's a horrible, horrible experience. <laughs> uh, you can fast from watching television, being on the internet, shopping. Interestingly, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul actually encourages married couples to fast from sex. It's not fasting if you're not married. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. He's talking, right? Married couples, let me illustrate. 1 Corinthians 7, he says, Stop depriving one another. He's just talking to married couples. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The problem in the Corinthian church is that husbands and wives were depriving one another. And he said, no, your body belongs to your spouse. Don't deprive one another. However, for a special spiritual purpose, for a limited period of time, from time to time, you should say no. By mutual agreement. Why? To build this discipline and character of self-control. So that when Satan comes and he tempts you with something that is illegitimate, you have the strength of character to say no. God's spirit has strengthened you. So you are not in control. So you are not controlled by your appetites, but you are in control of your appetites. So, again... Lloyd-Jones' definition, fasting is abstinence from anything, not necessarily food, but anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. Okay, so what does it look like? How should we fast? I want you to read with me, beginning in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 16. Jesus said, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Interestingly, on each of these spiritual practices, Jesus begins with a negative. He says, when you fast, don't fast like this. Don't fast particularly for other people's approval. Don't fast in such a way that you're moping around and people have to ask you, well, you know, well what's wrong? What's wrong? Oh, man, I'm fasting. I'm so spiritual, right? He says the same thing with giving. When you give, don't sound the trumpet. The plate comes down. You know, man, I'm putting the big check in. Check it out. You know, no, don't do it that way. When you give, when you pray, when you pray, pray in secret. And it's not wrong to pray publicly or the people know you pray, but the bulk of your prayer should be done in private before the Lord. This is a spiritual transaction between you and God. Same when you fast. Don't do it to be noticed by men because, as you will see throughout the scripture, 
God is always more concerned with our heart than with the practice itself. And genuine righteousness, genuine maturity is something of of character. It's internal. It's the heart. So David noticed, he said, God, I understand to obey is better than sacrifice. In fact, sacrifice from an impure heart, we're told, is abomination. God doesn't want to see anything of it. Malachi, the prophet, is instructed to, to put locks on the door of the temple. He said, could you just shut the whole operation down? Because it's an impure motive. And when we fast or pray or give from impure motives, it's actually destructive to our character. It doesn't build our character. We're doing it for the approval of men, and then we become slaves of others' approval rather than devoted to the approval of God. So Jesus begins with the negative. He says, don't do it for others' approval. Second, don't do it for self-righteous pride. I want you to keep your place here in Matthew and turn to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul says, since you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, that is, uh, external forms of religiosity, you're no longer depending on these things to gain approval by God. You understand that God has approved you because you're in Christ. And having been approved in Christ, you will always be approved in Christ. You didn't earn it. You accepted it as a gift. Now, because you are in Christ and you've died to those elementary principles, those superficial actions, why, as if you were living in the world and you were just a citizen of the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, then you're really spiritual. These all refer to things that are destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Do you see the paradox of what he's saying here? So these things are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body. People look at those practices and they say, wow, you're so spiritual because of what you don't do. And Paul says, no, that's actually another form of fleshly indulgence. You can indulge the flesh by your activities, by what you participate in, by immoral practices, Or you can indulge the flesh by what you abstain from because when you abstain from these things for the sake of approval of the world, you grow in pride. You become more proud of yourself. Remember, in our salvation and in our sanctification, it is the work of God, right? When we come to the cross, we come with completely empty hands. We don't come and say, God, thank you for what Christ did and notice now what I have done in addition to his death for me. Accept me because of what he did and also what I did alongside of this. Because my good outweighs my bad and thank you also for Christ. No, we come and we say, God, thank you. I I offer nothing. I bring nothing. Thank you that Christ paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All my sins that I, I ever did, all of my sins that I ever thought about doing, even the sins that I will do in the future, Jesus paid it all for every man and every woman and every child for all of history. His death was so amazing and so comprehensive that it covered all sin for all time. God, thank you that I enter into that. I accept. I don't bring anything. That's the gospel. And I remind you, FCA leaders, when you have an opportunity this week to present the gospel to these kids, remind them that it's free. Because they don't get anything else 
absolutely free, no strings attached in life. And probably a lot of them are coming from homes in which their approval and acceptance, even by their parents, is, it's conditional. But it's unconditional in Christ. God accepts us in him because Jesus paid it all. And that, that's good news. That's gospel. It's freedom. All of a sudden, wow, I'm free. I'm accepted by Christ. And for those of you who may be sitting here and, and you never have, have actually come to God, not offering him something, but just accepting something, I encourage you this morning, let's go before God. You don't, need to, you don't have to bow your head. You don't have to close your eyes. Prayer is not magical. Just in your heart and your mind, and you can say to God, God, I, I accept Accept what Christ has done on my behalf. I'm not going to try to add anything to it. I just accept. The moment that you do, God takes away your sins and he gives you his spirit. It begins that process of changing you, transforming you. That's called sanctification. And you know, that's the work of God too. We can't change ourselves. We can change externally maybe some of our behaviors, but our heart, our character, we can't change that. God changes that. God changes that. Remember, these disciplines we're talking about this summer, I don't want, we, I don't want us to confuse them. They, they don't change us in themselves. They're just ways that we put ourselves at the Spirit's disposal so the Spirit can change us. Fasting is one of those ways we put ourselves at God's disposal so that he can transform our, our will, so that he can build the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control within us. And so Jesus starts with the negative. He says, don't fast this way. Instead, fast like this. I want us to look at the example of Christ for an example of pure fasting, the the appropriate way. I want you to turn back with me again to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. We're going to look again at this passage that Don read earlier. Matthew 4 verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and he said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Why did this event occur? Have you ever thought about that? What? Why did Jesus need to be tested? Why didn't he just just start preaching? Why was he tested? Why, why was he tested in the wilderness? Why 40 days? Why did the Spirit direct him into this challenging and excruciating experience? Well, you notice, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led. Okay? There's a sequence of events in Matthew that's really important. It's really critical. I want you to look back just one chapter, chapter 3, verse 13. Because Jesus' temptation in the wilderness happens after Jesus' baptism. Chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, answering, said to him, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit descending as a dove and lighting upon him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This one, right here, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus showed up to be baptized, John had a problem. That was confusing for John. John didn't understand that. And I agree. I look at that. 
And Jesus' answer even is a little bit cryptic. John says, you need to baptize me. You're Messiah. I'm just the forerunner. How is it that you would want me to baptize you? And Jesus says, well, permit it this time so that righteousness can be fulfilled. Right? (laughs) What does that mean? I don't know if you've read that passage before and been a little bit confused. I I find it a little bit cryptic, which is not unusual. Jesus' teachings are often a little bit challenging, a little bit confusing. This is what I think he means. He's doing two things. First, in baptism, he's identifying himself with something. That's what baptism is. When we're baptized into Christ, we are publicly saying, I've been identified with Christ. I'm now in Christ. That's why I go down into the water. I'm buried with Christ. I'm raised to new life with Christ. I'm identifying with Christ. Jesus is identifying with something. Uh, Not with removal of sin. He's identifying himself with John's message, which is there's a forerunner. There's a a Messiah coming. I'm just the forerunner. And Jesus is saying, "I'm I'm that one. Okay, I'm that one. But I think Jesus is also identifying himself with the whole, the whole nation of Israel. I am Israel's forerunner. And as Matthew will explain very clearly throughout the rest of the book, Jesus is the ideal Israelite. Where Israel failed time and time and time again, Jesus will go through similar circumstances, but he will, in fact, succeed. He will depend upon God and show God's strength and God's power and provision. Where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. And so Jesus is brought through similar circumstances just as Israel was brought into the wilderness. So Jesus was brought into the wilderness. Again, keep your place here in Matthew. Turn all the way back to the beginning of your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, All the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and he let you be hungry and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, just as God led Israel into the wilderness. Jesus was led into the wilderness by God's Spirit to be tested. Israel was led into the wilderness to be tested. Forty years for them, forty days for Jesus. God was testing. He was testing Israel with hunger. And he tested Jesus with hunger. Their hunger was a test. Would they trust that God could provide for them? They're in the wilderness. They look around. They don't see bread. They don't see water. And there are millions of them. Will they die? They are dependent absolutely and completely upon God. And in their hunger, as they're hungry and they're thirsting and their body's legitimately needing something, They don't just cry out in dependence and and need to God with a humble and soft heart. No, they grumble and they moan and they say, God, we know the reason you brought us to the wilderness was to kill us. Let's get a new leader and a new God and get back to Egypt where we had all that we needed. And they fail the test. Jesus is led into the wilderness and he's hungry and he's thirsty. As Don said, 40 days without food. You know, and it's encapsulated in just a few verses, so we don't really feel the impact of it. It says, then Jesus became hungry. Yeah, yeah, really hungry. And his body is screaming for food. Legitimately, he needs it. 
But he acknowledges he needs something more. He needs to stay right with his father. And so he doesn't act out of his divine power and make stones into bread, which he could have done. He could have met a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Because God hadn't given him permission to make stones into bread. The creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, he'd made all things. He had made the stones, he could make bread. Later he'd make water into wine. He can transform things, he could do it. But God had not given him permission And so he said, no, I I choose God. Man shall not live on bread alone. I need God, and I need God's word more than I need to eat right now. And sometimes we think, boy, this must have been the most excruciating moment of testing. But I think it probably was the greatest moment of strength for Jesus. He'd already gone 40 days. What was another hour or two, or day or two? He had said no for 40 days. He could say no again. In other words, he had been filled with the Spirit of God at his baptism. And how that works out in a Trinitarian manner, I do not understand. But I do know that Jesus lived in full humanity by the power of the Spirit to set an example for us as to how we can live. When he was in a bind and he was really hungry, he did not pull out his divine prerogative, his powers. Instead, he lived with the same resources we have, the Spirit of God and the Word of God, to show us it can be done. This is how every man and woman can live. See, when we think about spiritual warfare, a lot of times we think it's this cosmic battle between God and Satan. That's not spiritual warfare. If it was a battle between God and Satan, it's over. Right? It's not a battle. It doesn't go on for more than a second. God and Satan square up, it's done, that's it, that's the battle. No, spiritual warfare is between God and God's representatives. And God has chosen representatives, men and women, humanity, who are below angels. We're physically weaker. We're not as intelligent. We're not as powerful. Man was made below the angels. And yet God chose man so that he could demonstrate his own power through the weaker vessel conquering stronger demonic forces. When we live in absolute dependence upon God and his spirit and his word in the fellowship of God's people, we conquer a greater foe. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Not we are greater than him, but greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That's spiritual warfare. And we need to realize we are engaged in a battle. We are engaged in a battle. And in this battle, your body will betray you. In the spiritual battle your body will betray you. Because your body will have cravings. And you'll want to meet them immediately. Jesus said to his disciples, when he wanted them to come and pray, he said, remember, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says, watch and pray. Why? Because we're about to enter into spiritual warfare. I'm about to head to the cross. I want you three to be with me. Pray. Do warfare with me. Pray. I'm going to leave you here. Pray while I'm gone. (sighs) They're out, right? Just like that. He comes back. Wake up. Try again. Be watchful and pray. He goes, man, they're sleeping in. Wake them up again. Pray. Come on. Pray with me. Be watchful. I know that your body needs sleep, it needs food, it needs water. Those are legitimate needs. But right now, say no to your body. 
and say yes to the voice of the Spirit and listen and watch and pray. Watchfulness is a spiritual discipline we hardly ever talk about. Keep awake. Keep alert. Pay attention to what's going on around you spiritually. Watch and pray. See, it's, it's legitimate to sleep. But if you love sleep, you become a sluggard. It's legitimate to eat, but if you love food, you become a glutton. These things are legitimate, but they can be taken to illegitimate extremes. And then we become slaves to these things. I have a friend who was uh, trained as an, an army ranger. And he told me one of the most difficult parts of their training was to learn to function without sleep. So we're driven to the point of absolute and utter exhaustion. And I've worked camps before. It's not quite as bad as army ranger training, but there can be moments. And every little thing just ticks you off. He said we had to learn to function at an extremely high level. When our body said lay down and surrender, we had to stand up and fight. We had to say no to the cravings of our body. And instead, listen and pay attention and stay watchful to the warfare that was going on around us. How do we do that? What does it look like? What's the value of spirit-directed self-denial? Not self-denial just for the sake of self-denial. That's just religious practice. John Piper wrote a great book on fasting. He calls it um, Hunger for God. And he said, hunger for God is spiritual, not physical. And we are less sensitive to spiritual appetites when we are in bondage to physical ones. This means that fasting is a way of awakening us to, a latent, spirit, to latent spiritual appetites by pushing the domination of physical forces from the center of our lives. Do you see the interrelationship between the physical and the spiritual there? This is one of the points I've been trying to drive home as we look at a biblical anthropology. You are a whole person. You're physical and spiritual. When the two are separated, we call that death. That's an unnatural state for humanity. Physical and spiritual are joined together. But our appetite for God is a spiritual appetite. However, when we're slaves to our physical appetites, we can't hear and be sensitive to the spiritual appetites. And so when we remove those physical appetites from the center of our lives, we're able to hear God's voice a little better, a little more clearly. Specifically, fasting helps us to do several things. First, fasting helps to expose our sin. When I'm hungry, I'm grumpy. Okay, just a little bit of hunger is all it takes to bring out, bring out just crabbiness in me. You know, I just get, I get short, I'm testy. Um, when I can feel that coming on, I make a very conscious effort not to say much at all. Hey, where does that come from? Where does that impatience, that quickness to anger come from? Well, it's obviously still embedded in my character if I'm an hour late for lunch and it immediately emerges. When you go without something that you really enjoy, how much do you long for it? How much do you crave it? That's revealing something about your character. It may be revealing something about what you've come to love more than you love God. Again, from Piper's book, he says, Normally we meet God in his good gifts. And then normally we turn every enjoyment into worship with thanksgiving. That's, that's normal. That's natural. But from time to time, we need to test ourselves to see if we have begun to love his gifts in place of God, in place of God himself. So from time to time, we need to test ourselves with hunger. 
It may be hunger with food. It may be hunger with something else, some other legitimate practice that when it's removed, it, it makes us aware of how much we really, really, really love that thing. Maybe, in fact, we're addicted to that thing, a good, legitimate gift from God that has actually become a God itself. Okay? And so one of the things that fasting does is it helps to expose our sin. It also gives us an opportunity to express our grief. When God exposes sin, fasting is one of the ways historically that God's people have expressed their grief to God. Joel chapter 2, the Lord says, Yet even now, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, I don't care about your external sacrifices. Don't, don't just tear your garments, but there's no change inside of your heart. Instead, let your heart be broken and come before me, lay before me. And fasting is one of the ways that you can express, God, I, I'm deeply grieved over my sin. And then third, it's one of the means that God has given us to help overcome our enslavement to sin. Uh, We live in a self-indulgent culture. And I believe that we are tempted from time to time to look at our culture and say, man, this is is horrible. This is as bad as it's ever been. Right? Culture's going down. America's on its last legs. But in fact, this is typical of where humanity always moves. Right? Right? Um, it started in the garden. Adam and Eve wanted to do things their own way, and they infected us. And so every person's been born, every, every man or woman, is infected with self-absorption. We want what we want, and we want it when we want it. Right now, always. I want the whole plate of cookies. I don't want just one. And if you don't give me the whole plate of cookies, I'm going to really feel that there's something wrong with you and not with me. Okay? Paul described it like this. He said, their God is their belly. Okay, literally, Uh, My translation says their God is their appetite. Literally, their God is their belly. Meaning whatever they crave has become their God. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he would say, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And, And take note. Again, he's not talking about sin. He's not saying all practices are okay for me, even sin. He has just railed on the Corinthian believers about all their immoral practices. He's not saying sin is not sin. It's okay. He's talking about neutral things, legitimate things even. All these things, particularly in his context, the eating of meat, he says, it's lawful for me, but it's not necessarily profitable. These things are lawful for me, but I don't want to be mastered by anything. I want to be mastered by God. And so he will say later on in the book, I buffet my body. I make my body my slave. I don't want to be a slave to my appetites so that after I preach to others, I myself might not be disqualified. That is, I would not be disapproved in the way that I've lived before God because I've been a slave of my appetites. And so I learned to say no to myself. Self-control is one of the hallmarks of spiritual maturity. But self-control for God's honor and glory, not so that people will look at me and say, wow, what a self-controlled person. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That is the capacity to say no to myself, that the Spirit has inspired and empowered within me. And fourth, fasting helps us to receive God's guidance in our lives. I want you to turn with me to Acts Chapter 13 and verse 1. Acts 13, verse 1. 
church in Antioch was a, a genuinely multicultural church. It says there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger. He was from Africa. Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted more and prayed more and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Why were they initially fasting and praying? Well, because they wanted to hear God's voice. They needed guidance from the Lord. They sensed that God was calling the church to go out in a new direction. This was the first missionary sending church, the one in Antioch. Paul was the first sponsored missionary, Paul and Barnabas. This is a new venture, and they're listening to the voice of God, and so they fast, and they pray, and they hear the voice of God. Turn back again one more time to Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount with me. Read chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Let's read verse 16 again. He says, Whenever you fast... Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. You want to be noticed by men and you're noticed by men, that's it. There you go. That's the end of the story. And they say, wow, what a spiritual person. You know, at the end of your life, who cares? And you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ and you say, well, a lot of people thought that I was a really spiritual person. You say, well, that's really great. That's wonderful. So, you know, I, so What? That's not how we evaluate things around my house. How you look at one another. Because God sees the heart. But you instead, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now if somebody finds out that you're praying or fasting or giving, it's okay. He's talking about the motive of our hearts. And he says, your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. What's the reward? I don't know. I don't know what the reward is. But your father who sees in secret, he's going to reward you in secret. It's going to be something between the two of you. I, I was reading, uh, I've been reading the book of Proverbs the last uh, month. I just finished it and I just keep reading it. And there's uh, one verse in particular that has jumped out at me. It's Proverbs 3, verse 32. It says, he reveals his intimate counsel. To the upright. I highlighted that. He reveals his intimate counsel to the upright. There is a a level of intimacy that no one else can see or understand that God gives to those who are pure of heart. The upright. And fasting is one of those ways that in the privacy of our own spiritual experience... We can listen to the voice of God and we can hear God's direction and he can reveal his intimate counsel to us. So where do we start? Let me give you just a couple of ideas. Okay, first is uh, check your motives. If it's just for people to know about it and approve, just don't bother, don't start, right? But if it's something you want to begin to, to learn to practice, to draw near to God, then, then begin. And I would say this, start small. I have a friend who has done multiple 40-day fasts. I don't recommend you start there. Uh, <laughs> I'd say fast a meal you know, or fast a day or fast from something else, you know, like coffee or a particular practice, maybe something that's a legitimate practice, but in your life you're wondering, has this thing 
God, it's hooks in me so deeply that I, I begin to love it more than I actually love God. I'm not loving God for this gift and appreciating it with thanks, but it's risen to the point of competition with God. Okay, but pick something that you can start small. And when you do, just listen. Okay, it, when I fast, uh, particularly when I fast food, after I begin to get hungry and I miss that first meal, there's chatter that begins to go on in my mind. Okay? Listen to that. Because it's very revealing about the things that we love and the rationalizations. Well, I could actually start eating right now. Why? And how am I rationalizing that? What are these spiritual processes that are going on within me? Listen to that chatter that begins in your mind as you begin to say no to certain things. Okay? And then listen for the voice of God because God does want to reveal himself to us. God wants us to know him more than we want to know him. God longs to reveal himself. God is not trying to hide himself from us. He wants a deeper and more intimate relationship with us, even more than we want it ourselves. Let's make ourselves available to him in that. Let me give you one more quote as we close. One writer said this. He said, fasting is not a contrived means to make us love God. We love him and we long for him. And then fasting rises up as a way of saying earnestly with our whole body what our hearts feel. I hunger for you, O God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would learn to draw near to you through fasting, through prayer, through the wonderful revelation of your word, through fellowship with other believers. I pray, Father, that we would listen to the voice of your spirit, which even now is stirring up within us a longing to go deeper with you, a longing to know you more. I pray, Father, that in that process you would transform our character more and more into the likeness of Christ. I pray, Father, that we would learn to look to him as our example of how to depend upon you, how to say no to the cravings of our bodies, and say yes to the voice of your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week, and we will be praying for your team all week long. Have a good week.